So today, we're going to be in Psalm 49. Last week, we were in 48, and that was a wonderful psalm, a song of Zion, and praising the city, not because it's a great city. We talked about why we like certain places, but because it remind, reminded the author of who God is, His presence and His protection in their life. Today, it's a whole different psalm. Um, and it's going to look and feel and sound very different than Psalm 48. This is the last of the series that we've been going through from Psalm 42 up through the chapter today of the Psalm of the Sons of Korah. The Sons of Korah were people that were put in charge. They were priests, actually, that were put in charge of the music in the temple by David and Solomon and kind of in that era. And today's psalm is a wisdom psalm. So as we read it today, it's going to sound a little bit like the book of Proverbs, maybe, in your ears, maybe a little bit like the book of Ecclesiastes. It's poetry, but the idea there is installing wisdom. So today, and usually Psalms speak to our hearts and our emotions and our feelings. This one's speaking to our heads, wants us to know something to be true. The Hebrew word for wisdom actually has to do with skill. In the Hebrew way of thinking, wisdom was about living life the way God intends it to be lived. That's what wisdom is. You know, you can be, have intelligence and know a lot of facts about a lot of things, and that's fine, and that's great, but that's different than wisdom. Wisdom is the application of the skill and putting that into practice, right? That's really what wisdom is. Wisdom involves making wise decisions when they come up in your life. Wisdom involves having moral judgment, knowing right and wrong. Wisdom involves an awareness of God and the fact that we're accountable to Him, all of us. That puts everything in a little bit different light, doesn't it? Wisdom also speaks of making proper use of our time, talents, and our treasure. And so when you read the book of Proverbs, for example, and Ecclesiastes, you get those themes in there, the themes of wisdom. I've entitled this sermon, A Grave Warning. What's going on there? Well, the main point, and we'll see it as we read this chapter, is because of the certainty of death, he's going to be speaking of that, our focus should not be on riches in this life, but on eternity with God. Death is certain. So in light of that, how do we live this life? Well, we live it in light of eternity, with an eternal perspective, not just a temporal perspective. Now, when we talk about riches, he's going to be speaking about the wealthy. He's going to be talking about riches. I think it's important to point out there's differences in that definition. There's different kinds of riches. There's riches in what you have. Money, possessions, property, and that's going to be mostly the focus in this chapter. But there's also riches in what you do, your accomplishments. There's riches in what you know, intelligence, scholarship. But we also know biblically that there's riches in who you are. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are blessed with the riches in Christ Jesus, Ephesians chapter 1. Our character and our riches, because we're in Christ Jesus, are the greatest riches of all. And that's what we need to be focused on. So, verse 
chapter 49, we're going to read the first four verses, and he's going to give us an invitation. So let, listen to what he says here. He says, hear this, all you people. Listen, all you who live in this world, both low and high, rich and poor alike. My mouth will speak words of wisdom. The meditation of my heart will give you understanding. I will turn my ear to a proverb. With the harp, I will expound my riddle. That's a long invitation. That's a long introduction. He's kind of like stringing us along, getting us to pay attention a little bit. And here's really what he's saying in this introduction. He's saying, listen up. There's really something important here that everyone needs to hear. Verses 1 and 2 talk about it's a universal invitation. He speaks it's for all people of all cultures, whether you're high up in your society or low, it doesn't matter, whether you're wealthy or you're poor, it's an open invitation for everybody. And that's really wisdom, isn't it? Wisdom is available to all of us. Doesn't matter where we live, what socioeconomic structure we are in, wisdom is there for every one of us. In verses 3 and 4, he uses four words to describe this wisdom. Wisdom itself, then there's understanding in verse 3, and three, verse three. then there is a proverb, and then there's a riddle. Interesting. Wisdom is just kind of that broad term that kind of defines wisdom as a whole, but then there's understanding, the idea that you understand what is being said. You don't just take it in and hear it, but you actually do put it into practice and you realize what's going on. That's understanding. Then the next two words are means by which wisdom is communicated. You can use proverbs. Those are short, pithy statements on wisdom. Book of Proverbs. If you go there, there's those really short verses that talk about what wisdom really is. So that's a proverb. But then there's this riddle there in verse 4, kind of this enigmatic question or maybe a parable. It's a little bit more difficult to understand than maybe a proverb would be. And he says, I'm going to expand on these, expound these with my harp. And as I'm playing my harp, now we didn't have any harps up here this morning. They haven't seen one of those in a while. Maybe some of you play it, but we do have guitars. So the idea is you're strumming the strings of a guitar in a sense, and you're pondering and you're pouring out these riddles. You know, music is so important. The whole book of Psalms is music. We read it and we treat it like text, but it's really songs, wasn't it? Meant for worship in the temple there in Jerusalem. Songs can help us express our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions. Have you ever just kind of been at a lack of words for something in a song, you hear it on the radio, and it's like, that's it. And it just hits you, like out of the blue. So songs, I think, are a tool to help us express what we're thinking and what we're feeling. But I think songs also form in us our thoughts, our emotions, even things about God. And so songs are, play an important role in our, in our worship. We, every Sunday, we have music. And I love the fact, as I was listening to the music, the themes that we're gonna see today in Psalm 49 were there in the music. 
and it just helps us begin to think about and express to God and, and allowing Him to form in our lives what He wants. That's what music does. That's why it's so important to do. We don't just do music to fill space and time, right? We do it to form us. Now, he's going to talk about the futility of riches in verses 5 to 12. Let's read that. Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches, no one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. Wow so that they should live on forever and not see decay. For all can see that the wise die, that the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. Do you sense as I was reading that, it sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? If you've read that book. Nothing new under the sun, right? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Futility is in wealth. And what the psalmist wants us to understand is that if that's where you put your trust, there's going to be futility in your life. And that's really the lesson here. He opens it up with a question in verse 5. It says, why should I fear now, in his context, we don't know the story here of what was going on, but he speaks of the wealthy and fearing the wealthy. Why would they fear the wealthy? Well, in their culture, the wealthy would often take advantage of those that were poor. Happens in our culture. Happens all the time, doesn't it? Those that have the power, those that have the money, push down those that do not and are lacking. So maybe looking around, he feels like he's surrounded by those that are wealthy and that are going to oppress him. Maybe that's something that's going on. In this chapter, he will also speak of death, the certainty of it. Maybe he's fearing death. Maybe he's fearing the loss of legacy. He's going to talk about a name and why that's such a big deal. Maybe he's just fearing that maybe I'm going to trust in God and in the end... It's not going to pay off. We don't know what that fear is, but I think today the reality is we all come in here even with fears, don't we? Maybe you're fearing health concerns. Maybe you're fearing the possible loss of a job. Maybe you're fearing relationship struggles. Uh, maybe you're just fearing the uncertainty of this life. I don't know what it is, but the reality is sometimes we come to God's Word, we come into the community of believers on any given Sunday with these fears. And what the psalmist wants us to hear is we need to begin to relinquish those. In Scripture, it says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So that's not where God wants us to go. The only fear, by the way, that's encouraged in Scripture is fear of the Lord. Why? Because in a fear, with a fear of the Lord, there's a beginning of wisdom. So that's the one fear that it's okay to say, yes, I fear God, I respect Him, but I'm not going to fear all those other things that want to creep into my life. I'm not going to allow those to discourage me. 
Verse 6 says they trust in their wealth. See, wealth is not the problem here. It's the trust problem. If you go in Scripture, all throughout Scripture, there are a lot of wealthy people in Scripture. Abraham, Job, David, Solomon, maybe one of the most wealthy, right? Coming to the New Testament, even in the story when you're going through Luke, that last chapter, we had Joanna, one of the women who came to the tomb that morning. She was a woman of means. She was married to a man who was wealthy, and so she supported Jesus from her wealth. The two that put Jesus in the tomb, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, were wealthy men. So it's not the wealth that's the problem, it's where is the trust. And verse 6 says they're trusting in their wealth. Verses 7 to 9, no one can redeem the life of another or give God a ransom for them. Redeem and ransom. Look at verse 8. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay. So the idea here is redemption is buying back something, ownership. You can't buy back your life with money. You can't add to your life with money. That's very clear. Ransom, this idea of a price paid to free a slave or a hostage. The idea there is we, we can't free ourselves from death by paying money. That's very clear and very obvious. But look at verse 8. It's kind of like a parenthesis. It's in between 7 and 9. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. And when I read that, my mind immediately went to the gospel. It's costly. It cost God something great. Nothing we give is ever enough. That's just the reality, the truth of the gospel and God's grace. Only God has the ability and the wherewithal to redeem a human life. Christ is the only redeemer. The blood, His blood, is the only ransom. There's a passage in 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19 that says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver, gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors. It wasn't with gold. It wasn't with valuable things. What was it with? It was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Only His blood can atone. Only His blood can redeem. Only His blood is our ransom. We need to hear that today. I'm a geek of history. I love history. So this week, there was a very important historical event that happened on Thursday. Do you remember? Some of you know what I'm talking about. It was the 75th anniversary of D-Day, the Normandy invasion, an event that changed the war and most likely changed our world. And so I was just absolutely enthralled. Uh, I was watching the Today Show, and any kind of little news thing they could do on the D-Day, I was all over it. There's a picture, if you could shoot that up there. This is just a picture, obviously, of one of the beaches there, of the landings. And there's a quote there by President Roosevelt, and I think it's very significant. And it says this, they fight not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. 
Isn't that a beautiful statement from FDR? The reality is, if you think about what Christ did on the cross for you and me, it wasn't about conquest. He owns this world. He's Lord of, King of kings and Lord of lords, okay? Why did he come to this earth? It's about liberating you and me. That's why he came to this earth. We needed someone to pay for us, and we couldn't do it. He did. You know, it was at great cost that those soldiers stormed those banks of Normandy and eventually turned the tide in the war. I think the numbers for just the American casualties alone are about 2,500. That happened within just a few hours of them landing on that beach. And the courage that it took to do that just kind of boggles my mind. Um, there's a guy named Ken Burns. Maybe you know him. Uh, he's done a lot of really fantastic historic document, documentaries. And they inter were interviewing him about the D-Day. And he said this. He said, when we forget, and he was talking about things like that great event that happened 75 years ago, when we as a people forget, we allow another narrative to take over. I think that's true in life. If we forget Christ's suffering for us, what his death means, we allow another narrative to take its place. Another narrative meaning things like, hey, you're good enough. You're a good person after all. As long as you just try to do your best, you can please God on your own. That's another narrative. It's a wrong narrative. And it totally disrespects the death of Christ on the cross. So remembering it and again, just in our minds, just understanding the importance of that, not allowing another narrative to take its place. In your note takers, um, I put on there six reasons why the futility of riches. Why are rich, riches futile? Well, there's six reasons in this passage here from verse seven really down through 12. And they're in your note taker and they're up here too. Number one, they cannot purchase our lives. Look at verse 7. No one can redeem, that means buy back, no one can redeem the life of another or give ransom to God. Luke 12, 15 to 21, I remember preaching on this story. It's, Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Don't get caught up in the now and the abundance and the greed that sometimes captures our hearts. Here's what Jesus said. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Praise God. Gift from God, right? He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones, and there I'll store my surplus grain. I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Hmm. Storing up things for yourself versus being rich 
towards God. When we talk about death and meeting God, our wealth is meaningless in picture of that, in light of that. Number two, the second reason for the futility of riches is because all of us, or excuse me, wealth is no cushion um, in our life. You know, the reality is we try to cushion ourselves from harm or abandonment by heaping up wealth. But the reality is it's going to come. And, you know, in Luke 12, the man said, eat, drink, and be merry. Life was good. He was enjoying the comfort. And there's nothing wrong with comforts. But if we allow those to take our mind off God and if we start relying on ourselves and the comforts, then we're missing out. That's where the distraction happens. Wealth, is, wealth cannot purchase our lives. It's no cushion, and all will experience death. Look at verse 10. All can see that the wise die, those that do follow God and do what is right. They die, as do the foolish and the senseless. So at the end of the day, look, it's, it's a certainty. You can't, uh, death and taxes, you know, there's two th sure things in life, right? There's probably more than that, but th those are the ones that come to mind often. W the wealthy might be able to extend their lives, access to greater health care, things like that. Yes, but at the end, they can't get away from the inevitability of death. And then the, the last part of verse 10 there, it says, leaving their wealth to others. You can't take it with you. You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer, right? You've heard that probably. It's a good reminder that at the end, what we've accumulated here doesn't go with us into the next life. Death is the great equalizer, if you think about it, rich, poor, and that's the rich man and Lazarus parable that Jesus told in Luke. On this earth, there was a big difference between the two, but in the next life, everything actually got kind of turned around, didn't it? And the beggar was in a better place than the wealthy man that was here on earth. And so death is that great equalizer. At the end of the day, when death happens, nothing goes with us. Ecclesiastes 6, 2. Here's what he says in Ecclesiastes. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor. Praise God for that, by the way. Good. So they lack nothing, their hearts desire, but God does not grant them, maybe, the ability to enjoy them. And strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. One of the things as you read through Ecclesiastes is he's looking at it from the perspective of under the sun. If all you see is this life, then there's going to be frustration and futility. That's meaninglessness. And one of the frustrations of the author in the book of Ecclesiastes says, look, you work hard while you're here, you store up money, and at the end of the day when you pass away, it's left behind, and who knows what happens to it, right? Maybe those that are foolish, maybe those that are wasteful will take that and waste it. And wouldn't that be terrible? And so there's this frustration that he talks about in Ecclesiastes. So that's another reason. It's left for other people. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead, your wealth. What do I mean by that? You can store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. How do you do that? Well, you do things for God's kingdom while you're here on this earth. 
Kingdom giving, kingdom serving is storing up treasure for the next life. Can't take it with you, but you can sure store it up in heaven, right? Eternity. Verse 11, another futility is the grave becomes our home. It says their tombs will remain their homes forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. They had these beautiful homes and they had purchased lands, but there's a tomb there. That's their home on this earth. That's what you see when it's all said and done. Again, that futility there. They name lands, this idea of a name for ourselves. We want to leave a legacy, don't we? Is our legacy about us, though, or is it about God? That's really the question. When I pass away, I don't want my legacy to be, oh, wasn't Ken amazing? I want people to say, man, I know God better because of Ken. That's the legacy I want to leave. There is a name, by the way, that we are not leaving behind here, but that we're to look forward to in the future, and that is the name in the Lamb's Book of Life. If we're going to leave our name anywhere, okay, in the book of Revelation, it speaks of that. Make sure your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's where you want your name to be. That's what's really important. And then verse 12 seems very despairing. Here's what it says. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. They're like the beasts that perish. Despite riches, people perish just like animals. In the end, we're no different than the animals in regards to our physical bodies that end up being placed in the grave and decaying. If you just look at it from the physical standpoint with the bodies, that's, we are no different. One of the commentaries said this. He said, it's the ability to think and reason that sets humans apart from the remainder of creation. Yet how animal-like we are when we fail to consider the shortness of our days and prepare for how we will spend eternity. Wow, okay, that puts it pretty true, doesn't it? How animal-like we are when we fail to think about eternity. We're just like the animals in that sense. Verse 13 to 20 speaks of the fate of those who trust in riches. It's been pretty bleak up to this point. It sounds a lot like the book of Ecclesiastes, does it not? Vanity, vanity is all, you know. When you read Ecclesiastes, you've got to stick around to the end. That's the thing with the book of Ecclesiastes. It's great in the end, but you've got you to get through there because it's beautiful the way it's wrapped up. And that's kind of the way it is here. It's getting better, by the way. Look at what it says in verse 13 to 20. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. So this is what he's been talking about. They're like sheep. They're destined to die. Death will be their shepherd. But, in parentheses, starting to change. The upright will prevail over them in the morning. Oh, I love that. Their form, it goes back, <laughs> their forms will decay in the grave far from the princely mansions that they had built for themselves here. Look at verse 15. This is it. But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. Man, that's our hope, isn't it? Do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increases, for they will take nothing with them when they die. We've talked about that. Their splendor will not descend with them. 
Though while they live, they count themselves blessed, and people praise you when you prosper. They will join those who have gone before them who will never again see the light of life. People who have wealth but lack understanding are like the beasts that perish. He repeats almost word for word verse 12 in verse 20. You see the similarity there. So there's really two parts of this section. The first part is the great contrast. So you have in verse 13 and 14 the foolish. They ignore God. They trust in themselves. It's not going to go well. And it says this is their fate. This is what's going to happen. It's going to end, in a sense, at the grave. That's it, okay? Death will be their shepherd. I want you to compare that with verse 14 of the last chapter. Preached on this. I ended on this in the last sermon. Look what it says, Psalm 48, 14. For this God is our God forever and ever. And then look what it says. He will be our guide even to the end. They're like sheep where death is their shepherd. We're sheep, but we have a great shepherd. God will be our guide, our shepherd, even to the end. To death, through death, and beyond death. What a huge difference it is. How bleak it is to say death is their shepherd. Not a lot of hope there, right? But then in the parentheses, the upright are going to prevail in the morning. There's that beautiful picture, this idea in the morning, it's going to be good for those who follow the Lord. It's a word of hope for those maybe who are being oppressed by the wealthy. There's a new day where God is going to make every wrong right. Psalms speaks to this. Psalm 17, 15. He says, as for me, I will be vindicated and I will see your face. When I wake, I'll be satisfied with seeing your likeness. That's just this beautiful hope that he has in God and in the future. Just real quickly, I was thinking about this. In our culture today, people ask this question. How can a loving God send someone to hell? We can't fathom that in our culture. In this culture, in Old Testament times and in Jesus' time, it was diff- the question was different. How can a loving God not punish the wicked? You see the difference? There's a different way of looking at life. We struggle with a loving God in hell and punishment and justice in our culture today. They struggled with the fact that, God, there's so many things that are happening on this earth that are unfair, unjust. Would you please make things square? A little bit different way of looking at things, isn't it? But he says, I'm going to be vindicated there in Psalm 17. Everything is going to be made right in the morning. It's a new day. Verse 15, but God. Whoa, everything's different now. But God. One of the commentaries, Derek Kidner said, one of, this is one of the mountaintops of Old Testament hope. Here it is. Everything looks bleak. In verse 15, but God, everything now is going to change. And there's two things there that says that God does for us. Redeems me from the realm of the dead. Living hope. Death isn't the end. He will be with me and I will be with him for all eternity. Isn't that an incredible truth? 
he doesn't leave me there in the grave. I'm going to be with him. And I love the second part. He's going to take me to himself. That's a relationship thing. It's like when I body's put in the grave, he's going to come and take me to himself. That says a lot. Psalm 73, 24, David was aware of this. He says, you guide me with your counsel. That's this, this life. You're my shepherd, God. You're with me. But then afterward, after this life is over, you will take me into glory to be with you. Isn't that beautiful? Then, in, actually, at the end of 13, the end of 15, and I, the NIV, for some reason, chooses not to put that word selah there, that interlude, that pause to consider. But in some of your Bibles over across at the end of 13, the end of 15, there's that musical interlude or that pause to consider what has been said. And I would say this is a great place to pause, <laughs> verse 15, because it speaks of God and the hope that we have in Him. 16 to 20 is a great illusion. Verse 16 says, don't be overawed. Very similar to verse 5 where he says, don't be afraid. Don't be overawed. Don't be overwhelmed. Don't be in fear of being mistreated. Don't worry about all the things that are going on down here on this earth because you have a God that's caring for you. And then he says, why? He answers the question, why should you not fear? Why should you not be overawed? And in verses 16 to 19, he kind of gives what you see versus what really is going to happen. So in verse 16 and 17, you have riches and splendor growing. You see the wealthy get more wealthy. You see their glory increasing. That's what you see, but what is the reality behind that? Verse 17 says, they take nothing with them. So what you see is an illusion. It isn't reality. Then in 1819, they talk about themselves. They count themselves blessed. Life is good, right? And other people doing the same. Other people giving them praise and saying how great they are. That's what you see. That's the, the illusion that you see. But what does it say in verse 19? says, never again will they see the light of life. If you reject God, and if you are in eternity without God, guess what? It's a very dark place. That's the description. Light is gone, okay? If you know God, it speaks of the new heaven, new earth, where they don't even, the sun isn't even needed there because the brilliance of the glory of God illuminates that place, it is so bright. So there's this huge contrast. There's this illusion that maybe we see here on this earth, but we know the reality behind it. We know the truth. And then he ends with verse 20. Again, it sounds very much like verse 12, but there's one difference. And I'm gonna read it and see if you can figure out what the difference is. People who have wealth but lack understanding are like the beasts that perish. The difference between verse 12 and 20 is the phrase, they lack understanding. Again, think about it. This is a wisdom psalm. So if anything, he wants us to gain understanding by reading it and hearing it. So what do they lack in their understanding? Well, here's four things. 
that they lack. Number one, the certainty of death. Maybe they're just, they're trying to escape that or they're not thinking about it, but it's a reality that's true. Number two, that they can't take possessions or honor with them. You leave it all behind, right? That's another thing that they need to understand. A third thing is the true issue of life is one's soul. Jesus said, you know, you can gain the whole world for whatever that's worth, but lose your own soul. What a tragedy. And that's what's going on here with people that trust in themselves, that trust in riches. And then the fourth thing is God alone is the one who can redeem from death. Money can't do it. It was talking about that. Good works can't do it. Having a lot of friends and a lot of possessions and a good name here in this place, that can't do it. Only God can do that. Only God can redeem and only God can ransom. Those are, the costs of those are so far beyond us. So I want to leave you with about four questions in conclusion to think about today. Number one, why should I fear? What is it maybe that you're fearing? And I want to encourage you not to fear. That's the word of God to us today. Trust me. I'm here for you in this life as well as the next. He's our shepherd. He's our guide to death, through death, beyond death. That's our, that's our God. So don't fear things on this earth. Number two, we all know intellectually we can't take it with us. We say that. We know that to be true. But the question is, do our day-to-day decisions reflect this reality? If we know that's true, do we live that way? Again, that's true wisdom, isn't it? Living it out in my everyday life. Are we building up treasure in heaven or accumulating things here on this earth to be left behind? That's the question. Number three, what am I hoping in? That really defines who we are. We can trust in riches. We can trust in ourselves. We can trust in our accomplishments. We can trust in a lot of things that really mean zip with God. It's about trusting Him. It's about trusting in His Son's sacrifice for you and me. That's what it's all about. And then finally, final question, have you been redeemed by the blood of Christ? Have you accepted the ransom payment that was paid by Him and His blood? That's where I want to leave you today. If you haven't, I want to encourage you to come talk to me. I want to encourage you to come talk to Josh. You know Josh? I want to encourage you to come talk to Mark. He was up here playing guitar. Or maybe someone that brought you here that you're comfortable with. I, want to, I would love to talk to you about that. So the only redemption we have is in Christ. The only ransom that can pay for our freedom is his blood. Praise God.